Good morning, New Hope. It's good to be with you again. Um, if my face looks familiar, that's because that was my daughter who was singing up here this morning. Great to have her involved in the service. She did have to get up very early, so she also made a great sacrifice for all of you. Um, speaking of my daughter, uh, she is 16. And one thing we did this summer was go on a long road trip uh, through Oregon and California to look at some colleges. And uh, we drove all said and done over 2,000 miles in about a week, um, kind of a whistle-stop tour of various schools as she wanted to, to check out what was out there. And I'm sure you've all had this experience, especially in California, where you know when we were growing up, many of us, um, if you were passing through a toll uh, area, you would want to, you know, especially if you're from out of town, you'd want to find a toll station and pay with, you know, some coins, uh, maybe nowadays a credit card, but there was nothing like that in Southern California. Uh, they have nowhere to stop. You know, usually you think there's going to be a lane with, um, you know, someone to stop and you can pay or there's easy pass. Well, you know, in the system they have uh, where we were in California, um, you just drive and there's a website on a billboard and it says pay your toll on this website. Well, if you're like me, you get home after your trip and you completely forget about it. And a week goes by and two weeks goes by and three weeks goes by and then you get a letter in the mail about a month later. So I get a letter in the mail and that was my reminder <laughs> that I should have paid this toll. And so I open it up and it was for $86. The toll itself was $3. And if you paid it within a week, it would be $8. But because I didn't pay it at all, the bill was $86. Now, I know how this works, right? They know they're not going to get $86 out of me. They just want me to pay the toll. So I get on the phone. There's a phone number there. I call the phone number. And, um, you know, my goal is to talk them down as much as I can. And so they didn't even put up a fight. <laughs> they just said, just pay the $8 and we could be done with it. So I felt relieved. They got $8 out of me and that was the end of it. Basically, if you see the connection here to the Bible, I wanted forgiveness. I wanted to be let off the hook. I didn't want to have to pay $86. I don't think I was guilty of anything that was $86. But I wanted to be let off the hook. I wanted to be released from that charge. And in many ways, that's the way we talk about forgiveness, right? Is just getting separated, that we let go from whatever we're guilty of or whatever charge is against us. But what's interesting about the Bible, what's interesting about God, is that's not the way that God looks at forgiveness. So often when we think about forgiveness, we think about being let off the hook. And we think about, you know, I'm on the phone with this person, right, customer service. I don't want a relationship with that person. I don't want to get to know them. I don't want to spend time with them. And they don't want to spend time with me. They have like 100 other calls to take from disgruntled Oregonians who don't want to pay $86. But if you look at the Bible and we look at the, the book of Acts, which is paired with the gospel of Luke, God actually wants a relationship with us. 
He's wanting and willing to forgive us because of that relationship. Forgiveness is so much more than God just waving a magic wand to wipe away our sins. He wants to welcome and embrace us as part of his family. And in that family, there's grace and privilege, but there's also responsibility and accountability and sometimes punishment. Just ask my kids. They know all about punishment. We have to acknowledge that, and this is actually, I, I made a title for my sermon. You don't always see the title when you're coming into church, but the title is meant to be kind of provocative. The Good News of God's Gracious Judgment. The Good News of God's Gracious Judgment. I purposely put two things here that don't seem to go together. Grace and judgment. Grace, we might think of as the way we're treated as special by God. Judgment is associated with accountability and punishment. Now, we want one, right, and not the other. But as we turn to the book of Acts, and I was really, uh, this really struck me as I read over Acts chapter 3 over the last couple of weeks. We actually see both of these things together as part of the experience of the church as it's taking the gospel into the world. This teaches us something about our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. We've been journeying through over the last few weeks and going into the future uh, sermon series on the book of Acts, on mission, the mission of the church. And in fact, the church has already done a long series on the gospel of Luke, and you can go back and check out those sermons and teachings to get a better sense of what Luke is interested in as he's talking about the story of Jesus in the church. But I want to do a little bit of review of where we've been in Acts so far, because chapter 3 is really important. Chapter 1 is the announcement of this worldwide mission, right? It's a, the book of Acts is kind of a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and actually, Jesus makes a cameo uh, here in the first chapter where he talks with his, the risen Jesus, talks with his disciples, and basically tells them what he wants. He wants the church to go out and spread the news, spread the, this worldwide beautiful message of the gospel. And then he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 2 is about the giving of the Holy Spirit. One scholar refers to the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. The Holy Spirit given to the people means God is with us and he empowers us to live righteously, to live with faith, hope, and love and to do the work of spreading this good news. So then chapter three is important because this is the mission that's kicking off. This is the first thing we learn about what it means to share the message of Jesus, to share the gospel, to invite people into this beautiful family. We're not going to talk about all of chapter 3, but the, you know, as you could tell from the reading, it was a long section. So I want to break it down into three, three units, three parts of chapter 3. In the first 10 verses, you have Peter and John go to the temple and I'll be going into this in more detail, but you have Peter and John go to the temple and there's a, a miracle healing that happens, a compassionate and wonderful healing. 
it actually literally raises wonder in the people that are around this healing. This creates a crowd, and it provides an opportunity for Peter to give a speech. So this is the first speech that takes place after Pentecost. This is a really important speech because it tells us something about what the gospel is all about. Peter actually gives a stern message to the crowd. He didn't have to do that. He could have just high-fived people and say, good news, line up for healing. He actually gives them a form of a judgment message. He gives them a hard teaching. But he doesn't end there. Verses 17 through 21 and then going further, he gives them a compassion-filled call to repentance. He shows some soft-heartedness in the end. When I was doing my own analysis of this chapter, I'm a Bible nerd, I'm a Bible professor, so this is my jam. This is what I love to do, study the Bible in depth and see all the details and try to understand why it is the way it is. And here's what I came up with. What we see in this passage is what I call the grace sandwich. I love sandwiches. I'm from the Midwest. We're sandwich people. So sandwiches, uh, now I realize sandwiches are biblical, according to Acts chapter 3. What we see here is, in this section, a kind of sandwich of grace, right? The healing that happens at the beginning of this chapter is a symbol of God's grace. What does that mean? There's so many different ways to define grace. When I was a kid, we learned it as God's riches at Christ's expense. That's fine. It makes for a nice, you know, acronym. But you might think of it this way. Grace is a soft heart towards everyone you encounter. A soft heart towards everyone you encounter. And that's what happens with Peter. Peter and John, they see this person. And they've been, at the, they've been at the temple every day. They're carried there, and they just want some, they just want some alms. They just, just want a little bit of money. And, 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 and they have compassion on this person and heal them. And that demonstration that the gospel is about grace. The gospel is about God's soft heart for us. Right? God has a soft heart towards us. And then this crowd forms, and Peter gives a speech. And he holds the people there accountable. He says, you like this healing, but a few days ago you didn't like Jesus. He holds them accountable. He could have done so many things. There's so many options available for him about what kind of sermon he would give on the spot. And in that moment, he said, you guys need to hear something. Accountability in the face of sin. He holds them accountable. But he doesn't end there, right? The speech goes on almost unexpectedly to this statement he says, you didn't know what you were doing. He said, you acted out of ignorance. Showing the compassion, leniency, and mercy will be there in the end with the hope of restoration of the individual and a flourishing community. Peter had in mind a bigger picture, right? He comes with a heart of grace, he holds the people accountable, but he has a bigger vision of God wanting to have a healthy and whole family. This is what I call the Acts Grace Sandwich. So that's the sermon in a nutshell. Sermon over. Just kidding. I'm a Bible professor, so we got to dig into all the details.
So I'm going to go section by section, scene by scene, to talk through some of the interesting details of what happens in this chapter. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 3. We're just going to go through these first 21 verses of chapter 3. Peter and John, you know, after, after the Pentecost happens, this, this wonderful event where they get filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, what do they do? They get back into natural routines and rhythms of worship. And they're on their way to the temple, the, Jew, the Jerusalem temple, to pray. They get back into some of their natural rhythms of worship. And what happens? They encounter a Jewish man who has a disability. Verse 2. He had a daily habit of being carried in and placed there to beg for alms. Alms literally just means mercies. The people would have mercy and give a little bit of money. Give the equivalent of a nickel or a quarter. And Peter offers fixed attention. Luke goes out of his way to point out that Peter stares at this man. That he gives him fixed and focused attention. And it's interesting because the language of staring is something that Luke is interested in general. The specific word he uses here is used 12 times in Luke and Acts combined and only two times outside of Luke-Acts in the New Testament. So Luke has some kind of special interest in staring. For example, in Luke chapter 22, when Peter is denying Jesus, this is, you know, in, in that time around Jesus' arrest, um, Peter is, remember, standing at a coal fire and there are some people around, and he's trying not to be noticed. And it says there's a servant girl who sees Peter in the firelight and stares at him and says, this man is also with you. That's the same word here in chapter 3 of Acts for staring. It's used again in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven and the people are watching him. The angels show up and say, why are you staring in heaven? Meaning, get on with it. Get on with the business. Why is this important? I think it's because this is a symbol of Peter caring for this person. Many of us live uh, in Portland, and there, as we know, is a great houseless, homeless crisis. And there are homeless people around, and, and it's my inclination to just not look. Right? Or it's my inclination to um, try to get through that area as fast as possible, um, we, we keep in our car granola bars or a water bottle. And if we, you know, if we stop somewhere and there's someone there who asks, you know, we might give something. But I'm not going to stare at them. But what Peter does is driven by compassion and love. He stares out of love. And he actually says to him, look at us. He wants eye contact. I thought about doing an eye contact exercise with all of you. I, because I have mercy on you. I'm not going to make you do that. But one time I was in kind of an icebreaker scenario where they had us turn to somebody and look at each other's eyes for like two minutes straight. It is really uncomfortable. It is really uncomfortable. So I'm not going to make you do that. But there's something about eye contact that is very personal. 
right? Peter really cares. And what does he say? I have no silver or gold. Really, Peter? I don't know. But he does say that. He says, I have no silver or gold. But I love this. But what I have, I give you. Peter shows such compassion. He says, you know, how many times have I said to somebody who's asking me for some spare change, I don't carry cash because I don't. But I don't think to say, but what I have, I give you. Right? I don't say that. I say, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash because I don't. And Peter doesn't either. But he says, but what I have, I give you. We all have something we can give others. Don't let, I don't have money, I don't have cash, be an excuse. I'm preaching to myself here. And then he does a miracle in the name of Jesus. And I think that's a message for us. How has Jesus empowered you to look intently at someone and then give what you have in the name of Jesus? The people naturally we're amazed. When he heals this man, he says, get up and walk. People are amazed. People will be amazed when we trust God and act with compassion in the name of Jesus. Books like the book of Acts give me hope that God is still doing amazing things. Amen? God is still doing it. He doesn't necessarily have to do it as a miracle but I believe God is still doing amazing things. Recently, my wife baptized some teens. To me, that's even more amazing than a healing miracle, right? These people's lives are changed by Jesus Christ. God still does amazing things. What we learn from these first 10 verses is that Christians are called to pay attention to the people around them. How often does the world work with a not-my-problem mentality? Right? You're walking by or through some scenario, and your first reaction is, I don't want to get involved. I got enough things on my plate. I got to pay my mortgage. I got to pay my bills. I got to pick up my kids. I have to deal with my own medical problems. But Peter and John recently empowered by the Holy Spirit, have a soft heart towards not only just anyone they encounter, but the least of these. Right? Not just, you know, anybody, but the nobodies. They have a soft heart towards the nobodies. That's challenging to me. Let's get into verses 11 through 16. A crowd forms, and so this miracle happens, and this, this guy is really excited. He's jumping and dancing, and at one point it says he's clinging to the apostles. Right? He's hanging on them because his life has been changed. And the people are in shock, and they're excited. And so Peter has an opportunity to give a message. And he actually gives them a statement of accountability. He says, you want to know where this healing came from, but you don't want to hear that it came from Jesus. You want miracles, but you don't want a crucified Messiah. 
Now I want to take a little bit of a time out before we go further just to say something about Peter's speech. Unfortunately, over the last about 100 years, some Christians have taken these kinds of messages from the Bible and used them to persecute Jews today. This is called anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism. And this is because we sometimes live with a framework that the apostles or Jesus were Christians and not Jews. But the reality is, as Peter is criticizing the group there, he's talking as a Jew to other Jews about a Jewish man, Jesus. So what's really important to understand is Peter is not critiquing all Jews in all places at all times. One thing to keep in mind, and this kind of struck me as I was reading this passage over the last week or two, he's at the temple, and this man has been healed, and this group knows this man who's there every day, which means these are local Israelites. These are local Jews. Close enough to the temple that they go every day. So when we were in Southern California, we went to Disneyland, right? And there are two kinds of people at Disneyland. There are tourists like me, and there are locals, right? And the locals might go every day, then they might just go for an hour and then go home. You know, they have a whole different relationship with Disneyland than I do. I go and we're there for like 13 hours and we eat, spend hundreds of dollars and we get exhausted. And then these locals might just come and go on a daily basis or every, every few days. It's kind of like that with the Jerusalem temple. You have these locals who go more frequently. And so he's actually holding these local Jews accountable. Why? Because these people may have actually been there in the crowds when they called for Jesus to be crucified. So Peter's not criticizing every Jew in all places. He's not saying all Jews are bad or all Jews hate Jesus because Peter is a Jew. So is John. He's saying... You want this miracle today, but three days ago or two days ago, you didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Peter is calling this group out for failing to see the work of God. He's saying, look beneath the surface to what God has already done in the humble Nazarene, Jesus. Okay, back to the story. What was Luke trying to tell us in this speech? I think he's saying there's a place for accountability in the way that we talk with one another. When people do wrong, it should be identified and renounced. It's part of the gospel mission that we help to make right the wrongs in the world with clarity and openness. I just read a book by Caitlin Beatty called Celebrities for Jesus. And it's basically questioning and calling out the fact that American Christianity has this obsession with celebrities, even Christian celebrities, and that we attribute to them so much power and status that they can do no wrong and they do lots of wrong and they get away with it. Not to say every famous person does wrong all the time, but this idea that we can turn a blind eye to sin or greed or narcissism. And people like Peter are saying, we need to hold people accountable if they've done wrong. We all know the importance of justice. Think about the International Justice Mission. Their job is not to just show grace to the victims, but also to hold accountable perpetrators of injustice. 
Last section, verses 17 to 21. Peter's speech flares up with judgment, but it doesn't end there, right? He says, you crucify the author of life. You rejected the Messiah, but then he changes, almost immediately he changes tone. In fact, he changes from saying, Israelite men to my brothers. I know you didn't know what you were doing. This actually reminds me of Jesus' word from the cross, which is actually in the Gospel of Luke. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he calls for repentance. So that your sins may be wiped out. Right? There is another chance. This is grace. To say to somebody, if you make it right, there's another chance. And I love the bigger vision that he casts. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he also talks about universal restoration. Forgiveness is freely given, but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Your foolishness is set aside And you have a chance to make it right and become a part of this beautiful family. Okay, time to summarize. Let's talk again about the grace sandwich. It's only 9.45 and now I'm hungry for lunch. The story begins with compassion. Peter and John seeing somebody The kind of person we see all the time that's down on their luck. And he has a soft heart. And then this crowd forms and Peter gives a hard message of accountability to that group. But it doesn't end there. There's compassion and mercy. As we think about the so what, it's important as we hear scripture, and I love hearing scripture read, as we process scripture, that we get to the, how does this change my life day to day? It's not enough just to show up to church. We're glad you're here. It's not enough to show up to church. We want to actually be fed by God, nourished, and have that energize and shape our life. So we're going to talk a little bit about the so what. I want to think about the so what in two contexts our relationship with God, and our relationship with others. So let's think about how this shapes our relationship with God. I feel like the the, the top layer of bread of this grace sandwich reminds us that God loves you not because of what you've done, but because you belong to him. That's a message some of us need to hear today, I think. God doesn't love you because of what you've done, how capable you are at your job, how good of a parent or neighbor you are. God loves you because you belong to him. But this is the meat or the tofu or the impossible burger. God expects you to change your life. God expects you to change your life. Right? Christianity has never been a ticket to do whatever you want. I've heard sermons like that preached before and they don't follow the Bible. Read Acts chapter three. 
Luke and Acts, those, these together, use the language of repentance a lot. And repentance just means turn your life around. Walk with Jesus. Sometimes that can make us feel guilty. Sometimes that can even make us turn away from God. The fact that he wants us to turn our life around. And so that's that bottom layer of this sandwich. God's heart is, is love. He's long-suffering. I love that word, long-suffering, because I'm a parent, and I know it. <laughs> there is grace and compassion from beginning to end. Think about the story of the prodigal son, which is actually only in Luke. So this is a story that's really interesting for Luke. That this prodigal son, irresponsible child, has wasted all this money, done all this bad stuff, goes home thinking he's going to have to, you know, shovel manure the rest of his life and that he might get beaten by his father or, you know, sent away. And his father has only gladness, puts the ring on him, puts the robe on him, kill the fatted calf, start the party. That's the God that we worship, the God that loves us. Okay, what about our relationship with others? As I look out in the world on social media or some of our interactions in the workplace, I see two extremes of how we treat other people. One extreme is holy outrage, right? Because of the politics that's going on in society, the politicking, the divisiveness, the cynicism, the I'm right and you're wrong, the I'm smart and you're dumb. I'm good and you're evil, leads to holy outrage. That's all judgment with no grace. On the other end, you have what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, which has kind of the beautiful veneer of grace, but not the substance. And that's where we're kind of passive aggressive and we just play nice we don't actually want depth with other people. We don't want to address problems, right? We just want to have small talk, keep it light, smile, and we never actually grow closer to people. There's this kind of, I still sense kind of an isolation that we experience, you know, maybe coming out of the pandemic. I know the pandemic is ongoing, but this isolation, because it's just hard to be in relationship with people, especially when there's difference and conflict. And sometimes that can lead to cheap grace. I think a beautiful model of how we see the gospel take place in relationships is with the character Zacchaeus in the gospel of Luke. So, you know, so Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He had cheated many people out of money. And what does Jesus say? He sees Zacchaeus who wants to connect with Jesus and he, he says, I'm going to eat at your house today. Right? This is a persona non grata in his community for being someone that's cheating other Jews out of money. And Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house, cook me up your favorite meal. I want to enjoy it. The holy outrage in us would say, don't associate with that person. That's a bad dude. And yet Jesus says, I want a chance to be in a relationship with this person. So he does, but he holds him accountable. He says, can you not see the error of your ways? And what does Zacchaeus do? He makes restitution. He says, I'm going to pay back and more. I'm going to pay back extra. 
He does that because Jesus had grace on him to start. But he still wants Zacchaeus to change. What we see in the book of Acts, we're wrapping up here, is just as the worldwide Jesus mission kicks off, we have Luke showcase what I call the grace sandwich. Grace, accountability, and more grace. Our understanding of the gospel gets thrown off balance if we lose any part of this sandwich. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into mind into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Some of us imagine a tyrant God. Some of us imagine a distant God who sees us as a nuisance maybe or who's constantly disappointed with us. But Luke reminds us, no, God looks at us the way Peter looked at that man. Care, compassion, and love. At the same time, God isn't just a genie at our beck and call. The crowd wanted more miracles. Do another one, Peter. Peter gave them a stern message. God is patient, but he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Maybe some of you today need to hear Peter's message calling for change in your life. God loves you, but you need to acknowledge your sins, make things right. Strangely, these two opposites belong together. Grace and accountability, mercy and judgment, forgiveness and repentance. As the spirit-filled mission of the book of Acts kicks off, this is what we learn about what it means to be part of the way. Let's pray. God, as Peter gives this speech, which is a hard message sandwiched with grace, could he have known the response that on the one hand, the establishment leaders wanted to arrest him, and on the other hand, 5,000 people became Christians that day and followed Jesus. Help us to not fall into the ditch of holy outrage or cheap grace. Help us to not cling to forgiveness without also learning repentance. Help us if we live with a guilty conscience to know that we have a God who cares about us and only sees us through the lens of family and love. What a beautiful message today. Help that sink into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.